uh, kids, I wonder how, how do your parents check on your health? What do they do to check on your health? Do, do you have any um, ideas? Any thoughts? I can hear some whispers, but I, I'm not hearing any words out loud. If your parents want to check if you're sick or not, what do they do? Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah they might talk to them. Yeah? Yeah. Um, that's right. But uh, we can do things, uh, parents will do things like listen. So ask and then listen to what their answer is, or uh, parents might listen to if they're if your children cough, um, or how much they're coughing, is the coughing increasing or reducing? Maybe they might uh, take your temperature. Have your, has your mum or dad ever taken your temperature? And then a few hours later, they take your temperature again, and they see, has it gone up or down? In some sense, the book of Judges is like uh, checking on the health of God's people in Israel back in the day. We've been tracking their health every generation or so. Over the course of the book of Judges, we keep touching base and saying, well, how are things going now? How are things going now? How are things going now? We've been tracking their health over the course of several generations, basically since they arrived in the Promised Land. But kids, if you've been following along in the book of Judges, has it been getting better or worse? It's been getting much worse. It's been getting worse and worse and worse as we go along. Sometimes it seems like things are getting better and then it all falls over in a heap. Without a godly king to lead God's people, the people have kept turning away from God. They kept doing what was right in their own eyes. So let's take a step back and let's ask the question, how would you check on the health of a nation? What would you use as a guide to check the health of a nation? Well, if you go and ask an economist... They will talk about GDP and debt and, you know, where's all the money going? Who's making money? Who's borrowing money? All those kinds of things. Or perhaps uh, uh, people at the moment, it's popular to measure the health of a nation based on what environmental goals they have. What's their plan for renewable energy? Uh, what are they doing to curb emissions and this and that and the other? Some might suggest that a health check for a nation is to look at their human rights record. How are people treated? Are they protected from their own government overreach? Is there restitution for wrongs? Now, talking about human rights is probably a closer way to check on the true health of a nation than those other two things I mentioned, but it's still not the best measurement. There's a better measurement than that. If you want to check the health of a nation, you must start with the question, where did they stand before God? Where do they stand before God? Are the people being faithful to God or rebelling against Him? This is the true measure of a health of a country. And in many respects, the health of this on this front will affect those other measurements because when you get right with God, then those other things start to fall into place. Then we treat people better. When you get right with God, you're concerned about the world that which God has given us to look after. When you get right with God... Often there is a, a, and this isn't a, a hard and fast rule, but often there is a connection with prosperity and blessing for a nation. So getting right with God is the most important thing. 
And that is the marker by which we will judge the health of a nation. Judges has shown us the pattern of people in their progressive departure from God. Israel, and remember this morning, whenever I say Israel, I'm not talking about the secular modern state that's at war with Gaza today. So put that to the side. We're not talking about that. That's a different thing altogether. We're talking about the ancient people of Israel that are in the, in the Old Testament. So the ancient people of Israel have been walking further and further away from God with each successive generation. Initially, things didn't look too bad when they first moved into the promised land that God gave to them as an inheritance. They'd made great strides in doing what God had called them to do and receiving their inheritance, but they lost momentum and they got mixed up with the nations around them and they started worshipping other gods and they, and they started behaving like the nations that God had judged for their wickedness. And so they end up in this cycle, and this is a familiar cycle across the pages of Judges, where the people rebel, God judges them and says, because you've rejected me, you're going to go into some form of oppression. Usually they would be oppressed by a nation, another nation, another country. And so the people would go into, you know, sometimes several decades of, of uh, oppression, and they would realize, hang on, we've rebelled against God, we should turn back to God. And so they would, they would turn back to God and say, God, please save us, we've done the wrong thing. And God would listen to them and he would send a deliverer, usually a judge, a judge like Samson or a judge like Gideon, who would rise up and, and deliver the people from their oppressors. But within a generation or so, what happens? They're back to turning their back on God again. It was a perpetual cycle across the pages of Judges and in, and in some way across the pages of Israel's whole history. We more or less saw this happen 12 times, for one time for each of the tribes. Things got progressively worse and now here we are in the last chapters of the book in an epilogue. And interestingly, the epilogue is made up of two stories. We've already covered the first story of a Levite who set up a false shrine, uh, worship, well, yeah, a Levite and another guy who set up a false worship shrine. But this is the second story in the epilogue about another Levite. And this Levite is, um, yeah, this, uh, the Levites were the priestly people from the tribes of Israel. There was 12 tribes and a, a, like a 13th tribe almost, the priestly tribe of Levi. And so this points out to us the fact that this epilogue has two stories about two Levites gone bad reminds us that the whole nation is sick all the way through. It's not just the 12 tribes, but it's the whole lot. The people, the Levites, the priestly tribe, the ones that are meant to be the emblems of holiness, you're meant to look at them and go, that's an example of how to, you know, be holy and live before God well. But even the Levites, even the Levites have fallen. So our story here starts and ends with a familiar refrain, and I'm sorry, but there's something gone wrong with the, the verse here, so it's not coming up, but you've got, the, um, you've got the, the reference in the corner if you want to follow along in your Bible. The, this part, this, these chapters of this story in Judges 19 to 21 starts and ends with the same words. It starts and ends with, in those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And so the author of Judges is trying to drive home a point that the, that the whole book of, of uh, Judges has been making more broadly, which is that without godly leadership, they were going to go astray. 
And it, and it leads us to suspect that if there was a godly leader, a leader appointed by God on the throne, many of the things that they would go through would have been dealt with or not happened at all. If only they had a godly king. And so with that in mind, let's look at the story. And, in, and it's, our, it's our last health check for Israel. And this last health check for Israel has three, I suppose we could call them measures that we'll look at. Three measures. The first measure is the health of a marriage. The health of a marriage. The story opens with a troubled marriage. A man and his concubine. Now, uh, a concubine is not a word, you know, we're not familiar with concubines. It's not a thing that has really come up. Maybe if you're reading stories about, you know, Persian kings or something, you might read about concubines, but it's not an everyday thing for us. But in this context of the ancient Near East, a concubine is basically a second wife. So, there would be a first wife and then a concubine would be a, 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 a woman that a man would marry secondarily to his wife. So, she would have lesser rights uh, and lesser, um, yeah, lesser honour in that family. Remember, this is an honour-shame culture um, uh, built around kind of households in the ancient Near East. And this guy has a concubine, so it's at least a second wife. Now, and if you, if you know anything about um, the story of Sarah and Hagar, you would see how much uh, uh, concubines don't get the same rights. When, when Sarah got annoyed with Hagar, who was... Um, kind of, it was Abraham's second wife, when Sarah got annoyed with her, she basically had the power to kick her out. So she wasn't protected. And this is in a society that's well before things like Centrelink, where you could go down the road and get, um, and get a, a little bit of money to s- subsist off. You know, if you were kicked out of a household and you didn't have anybody to, to any protection, like physical protection, there wasn't a police force, there wasn't like the same kind of level of law and order that we expect to be able to walk down the street and, 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 and be fine. Um, your protection and your uh, ability to thrive came in connection with a family. Were you under the protection of a family? Were you um, having your needs met um, in, in the connection with a family? So, um, yeah, so it, I can't remember why I made that diversion, but the point is that this is a a, a concubine, and concubinage is not sanctioned by God in the Bible. Concubines come up, polygamy comes up, but it's never sanctioned, except for there's one particular case in the case where in the the ancient Near East, when when a man died and left a widow, his brother was supposed to marry his sister-in-law and raise up offspring for his brother. So I know that this doesn't genetically work out, but the idea was that so that his brother's name would not disappear in the, in the nation of Israel and would also mean that that lady would then have offspring to look after her in her old age because once again, they couldn't go and get the pension. You know, being connected with a family and having offspring was an important part of being able to be looked after in your old age. And so there was, there was one narrow case where a form of polygamy was sanctioned. But other than that, the general rule was concubinage was never, um, polygamy, that kind of thing was not allowed. And interestingly, whenever polygamy tends to come up in the Bibles, it tends to come with strife. <laughs> Think of Abraham and Sarah. Think of uh, Leah and Rachel. Think of Hannah, who was being taunted by the, the other wife. But God uses polygamists 
just like he uses other people who are not living in ideal situations. He uses thieves, he uses fraudsters, um, even if he's not sanctioning their activity. Anyway, this Levite, this Levite is traveling. In those days, in verse 1, where there's no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem of Judea. So in Bethlehem, uh, he's taken a wife, a second wife from Bethlehem. Now, as I just mentioned, polygamy often came with strife. And so we're unsurprised to find that there's strife in this marriage as well. We're not told exactly what's going on, but basically this lady runs away back to her family home. Uh, His concubine was unfaithful to him. Uh, The word unfaithful here is uh, uncertain, whether or not she just didn't like him, like hated him or was uh, disgusted by him, or potentially she did uh, um, uh, cheat on him. She went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He wants to go win her over. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. So after a couple of months, uh, the, the, the husband goes to kiss and make up. The father-in-law is eager to make things right from two perspectives. Both he, as an ancient Near Eastern man, wants to show good hospitality. And so he brings in his guest and showers him with um, all the food that he could need, eat and, and wants to make him rested, well-rested, look after him, help the weary traveller. But also on the side of, you know, he wants his daughter to get back together with his son-in-law because there's, a, there's an honour thing going on there. It was, uh, would be a very shameful thing for that marriage to dissolve. And so he's eager to make things right. And he shows a lot of hospitality to the point where we might start wondering if it is actually a problem. <laughs> because every time the Levite would get up to leave, you know, get, get ready to leave one morning, the father-in-law would come along and say, oh, no, don't, it's too early to leave. Just stick around, have breakfast, and then you can leave later on in the day. And then they'd stick around, have breakfast, and, you know, one thing would lead to another, and then it's mid-afternoon, and he goes to leave, and he says, oh, no, no, it's too late in the day, you can't leave yet. You know, stick around, have dinner, stay the night, and you can leave early in the morning. Early in the morning? <laughs> oh, you don't leave yet, let me give you breakfast. And the cycle continues. But eventually, the Levite, who's made up with his wife, his concubine, uh, eventually says, no, no, I have to go, I have to get on the road. And so he does. He gets on the road. Now, what, what's the point of this? Well, in, there's two things. One is, the point is, if you go to Bethlehem, you get looked after. The guys from Bethlehem are decent fellows. I wonder who else comes from Bethlehem. That's right, King David comes from Bethlehem. Now, I know you weren't thinking of King David. You were thinking of Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. But what this story does is it signals to us that good guys come from Bethlehem. But the other thing it does is it shows at this stage in history where we're doing this health check with Israel, things are, there's division. Things are not right. It opens with a story of a dysfunctional marriage. And it seems to be setting the scene for what is to come, where there's, there's division, where there should be unity and covenant love. And now the issue seems to be resolved for now. The, uh, the, the concubine and her husband are back on terms and they're traveling together. Things seem to be going well. But what we're thinking about the health check on Israel, it's also worth wondering and thinking about a health check on our own country. Is 
Is marriage held in high esteem in our country? No. At least, we might frown on their polygamy, but at least in Israel, they had the decency to marry the additional partners. Whereas our culture praises uh, the kind of um, sharing around, or virtual polygamy, we might call it, what you can find online, virtual harems. Our culture upholds the idea that it's a good thing to have multiple partners, especially before you settle down. And, and, and people are often praised if they have settled down and got married and held their marriage in high esteem across several years of their life, if they decide that they no longer want to be part of that marriage, they don't like the, the person they're married to anymore, people will often praise them for breaking up a perfectly good marriage. They will be told that you're being true to yourself if you break down a marriage that you promised to serve in. So marriage is not held in high esteem in our country. And please uh, hear me, as I talk about these things, I don't talk about these things to, uh, to try and... If, if you have experienced breakdowns in your life, if you have not treated marriage in high esteem in your life, I'm not trying to dump on you. I'm just trying to kind of point us towards the good And when we come up against what is not good, then we have to recognize that that we've made mistakes in our past, that we've done the wrong thing, and turn to Jesus. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We in our country do not hold marriage in high esteem. So what can we do? Well, we can marry well. And if you want a good guide on getting married, you can read the Song of Songs and, and, and Proverbs for young men and young women to prepare for marriage. You should keep your covenant vows even to death. You should teach your children to honour marriage. But if things keep going the way they are in our country, Christian marriages will be increasingly rare and weird. But I encourage you to own it and to pursue faithfulness in this area. Although uh, marriage is in a dire state in Australia and it it was mixed up in, in ancient Israel, we should remember that messed up views of marriage are a symptom of a greater problem. We go, there's a problem here, but there's actually something deeper going on that is causing the problem and the breakdowns in our relationships, in our country and in Israel of old. So we come and we look at the, the second health check in um, Israel. We're looking at the health of the community. So the Levite, his concubine and his servant and his couple donkeys They've left the father's-in-law's house. They've head out of Bethlehem. They're on their way back to Ephraim. But they've got to stop somewhere along the way. Uh, And so there's not like motels where you can just kind of rock up or you can call ahead and say, hey, can I have a room? What you would do is you would travel through during the day when it was light and you could see what was going on and you're not going to get jumped by high women. You travel during the day and then at night time you'd... You'd try and find lodging in a in a town with a where there was protection. So you would go into a, a, a local town and you would probably sit up, set up in the city square at, later in the day and you'd kind of hang out there and wait and hope that somebody would take you into their house and uh, give you give you somewhere to sleep. Worst case scenario, they should close the city gates and you should be safe to sleep in the city square, kind of camp it out. That's the ideal. But that's not what happens for this Levite his concubine and his servant. So 
they're traveling along and the servant says, hey, let's stop in at Jebus, which is the older name for Jerusalem. Uh, so this is before Jerusalem was an Israelite city. He said, let's stop in at, at Jebus. And the Levite says, no, 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 I don't want to stop in there. They're not our countrymen. They're foreigners. They're not going to treat us well. Let's stop with our own people. Let's stop in a city where God's people live. Uh, in verses 12 and 13, it says, uh, his master said to him, we'll not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we'll pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, come, let us draw near to one of those places, these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So this is a reasonable expectation, right? I'm going to stay with people who I could trust to, to protect us and look out for us. You're better off to, live in a, to go and stay in a city where God's people live. You would think so. But if you've been following along with the book of Judges, you would know that this is a tall order by this stage. Because everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. And so the travelling party pushes on to Gibeah. And they passed on and went their way, in verse 14. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And they went, he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. So he's come into a Benjaminite town, the town of Israel, with the people from the tribe of Benjamin at Gibeah, ready to experience, hopefully, some lovely hospitality from God's people. But he doesn't get taken in. They live, they're going to camp it out in the town square. And they've got provisions. They're looked after. They don't need food or water or anything. They've got what they need. So they decide it's going to be okay to camp in the square. But an old man comes in from out of town who's he's been out in the fields working. And the old man from Ephraim comes in and he sees them set up for camping in the city square. And he says, oh, no, 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 don't stay here. Come and stay with me. So this is a good sign. Maybe there is some hospitality left in Israel after all. Maybe there is some hospitality in Gibeah. So he, the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought them into his house and he gave donkeys feed and he washed their feet and ate and drank. So it seems guys from Ephraim aren't half bad, or so it seems. But then things take a really bad turn. In verse 22, as they were making merry, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, literally sons of Belial, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. So a gang of guys from the city forms up around the house while they're trying to have a nice night of eating and sleeping. So this, these sons of Belial, these sons of worthlessness, these sons of wickedness, it's probably not the whole town, but it's a sizable portion, enough that later on when the Levite is recounting this, he says the leaders of the town assembled against it. And they demand to know him, the traveling man, which is a euphemism for sexual activity, carnal knowledge. They demanded to rape the Levite. Where's all this happening? This is happening in Gibeah. Dodgy guys come from Gibeah. Now, if you are familiar with the book of Genesis, this might start to ring a bell. Because, remember, two angels came to visit Lot when he was living in the city of Sodom. 
And when those angels arrived to visit Lot, what did the men of the town do? They surrounded the, t- the, the house, a gang gathered around and demanded to rape the angels. It's one of the most morally repugnant events known to human history in terms of that what happened at Sodom becomes a byword for evil across the pages of the Bible. And here it is happening, not in a foreigner's city, but in a city that is supposed to be made up of the holy people of God. This is the most heinous thing. And we haven't even got to the worst part yet. This should be a safe place. And so the host refuses to send out the man and offers something almost as bad. He offers to send out his young daughter and the, his guest's wife. And the husband does the most awful thing. He sends his wife out. Instead of putting his own honour and life on the line, he sends out his defenceless wife to suffer humiliation and abuse all night. And as dawn rises, she struggles back, falling down on the doorstep, looking for refuge and safety, but she's shut out. And the man who should be protecting her is inside sleeping, while this poor lady is thrown to the wolves, suffering unimaginable horror. He acts to save himself, and others suffer on his behalf, so that he can have comfort. Now, I'm not saying that the alternative should have necessarily been himself going out, but I am saying that he certainly shouldn't have sent his concubine out in his place. And so this this is the health of Israel right here. Men who demand homosexual acts with tourists, And husbands who not only refuse to protect their wives, but send their wives out to face the atrocity for them. And it gets worse. In verses 27 and 28, her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's get going. But there was no answer. And he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. He's basically portrayed as being indifferent to the woman. This is the man who came to speak kindly to his wife and win her back. And here he is, not even concerned for her welfare after she suffered all night reaching for safety, stretched out there on the doorstep. And he basically just says, get up, we've got to go. How callous, how infuriating. We should, we, should be, we should be so angry towards the men of the town, but here we are, not sure who we should be angry at more. Gibeah or this Levi. Is this what a godly community should look like? Instead of protecting marriage, protecting this woman, it's led to her abuse. Instead of a host keeping his guests safe, he offers to send out one of them to suffer. Instead of a community helping travelers, it wants to hurt them. 
Instead of pursuing God's design for sexuality, they pursue perverse and unnatural passions. Instead of protecting the vulnerable, it used and killed them. Instead of care, there is indifference. Instead of love, there is selfishness. But but isn't this much like our own community? No, we don't have gangs of men demanding to know tourists. But the proliferation of homosexuality is still rife. And I know this can be hard to hear for some people. I know that many of us have friends or, or family members who are homosexual or perhaps people in our midst at the moment struggling with these desires. But this is not what God wants for his people. This is not part of God's design. And I'd be happy to talk more about that at some other time. But the fact that homosexuality is rife in our nation is a sign of our nation turning against God. We have a society of men who will not stand up to protect their families, but will rather leave them, not provide for them. We have a society who kills the most vulnerable people in the womb for the sake of comfort. We have a society that is hell-bent on mutilating and abusing vulnerable people, like children, teaching them that they are a different gender. And we have a society that in times past claimed to follow the Lord Most High, but is now indistinguishable from Sodom and Gibeah in many ways. Our morality is seriously messed up, but it's a symptom of a greater problem. We come to the last part of our story. And I'm going to be summarizing a lot of what happens in this last part. This last health check is, in, is where uh, a health check of the nation as a whole. The Levite, he goes home and he is outraged by what has happened. He is outraged, unsurprisingly. And so he decides he's going to send a message to the rest of the nation. When he entered his house, in this verse 29, he took a knife and laying hold of his concubine, divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. And so this is a grisly call to action. He's saying, look at us, what is this atrocity this, look at this atrocity that has happened in Israel, and it's basically a call for the whole country to come together and do something about it. And the grisly, the grisly call to action works. The people come out. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and, all, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. So they're coming out. They're answering the call. Something needs to be done. We need to find out what's happened and deal with it. And this is a good sign. Perhaps there is hope for the people of God yet that they would answer this call to action and deal with this issue that has arisen in Gibeah. So they listen to the Levite story. They listen to him recount what happened and they basically say, look, we need to deal with this. We need to find justice. So the first port of call is they go to Benjamin and say, hey, can you give up all the guys, all the criminals that did what they did in that night at Gibeah? Can you please hand them over? Justice needs to be done. But Benjamin, 
refuses. The tribe collectively would rather defend these criminals than hand them over. And so the nation as a whole goes to war. This is civil war because it is one tribe, the Benjaminites, against the other 12, the other 11. They have to go to war. And so the people of Israel, they do do the right thing. They go to God and they ask God, what should we do? How should we do this? And God gives them instructions. He says, Judah should go up first. And then there's a series of uh, battles that take place over the course of a few days in which Benjamin looks like they're going to win, but then they get tricked into thinking that they're winning and the, uh, the, the other Israelites come into their city and burn their city. So, the, um, so Israel wins and Benjamin is brought to their knees and a whole bunch of Benjaminites are killed. It's, it says in um, chapter 20, verse 35... The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So Benjamin is brought low. They are decimated, so to speak. But one other thing that happened during this time is that the other 11 tribes said, because of what Benjamin has done, we're going to make a, a vow. None of our daughters are going to marry a Benjaminite. We're not going to, we're not going to let them... Um, it's a sign of rejecting them because of what they have done. And so now there's creating this break in the people, the people who should be a cohesive 12 tribes. Now there's 11 and 1. So after a while, it becomes apparent that Benjamin, they've got boys that are growing up. Their boys are looking for wives. Where are they going to get wives? And so there's this, this quandary the Benjaminites are looking, uh, uh, fellas are looking for wives, but they can't find wives because all of the other tribes have said, no, you can't marry our daughters. And the people of Israel were not supposed to marry outsiders in terms of people who didn't belong to God. So they've got, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And so what's their solution? What's their solution? We're going to go and kidnap. We're going to go and destroy people and kidnap their daughters. And they decide, well, when we got together as the 12 tribes, there was one of the group of people who didn't turn up to the council and be involved. So that's enough. Therefore, they didn't promise not to um, give their wives to Benjamin. Therefore, you can go and take wives from them. And so they go and they kill everybody except the ladies that they wanted as their wives. Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword and also the women and little ones. They kept, they kept the young ladies. This is their nation now. But they didn't capture enough young ladies with this uh, massacre. And so they come back and they say, um, they say, well, we need more young ladies to marry our sons. Well, there's this, there's this regular event, this regular festival where a bunch of young ladies get together and they, and they celebrate and they're kind of off by themselves. So what we'll do is we'll go and kidnap them and that way uh, we'll, we'll get wives. But then when the other tribes complain that we kidnapped them, we can just say, well, you didn't give them to us so you haven't broken your promise. But now, um, you know, don't, don't, don't take the wives away from us. Here it is. In verse 22 of chapter 21. 
When their fathers and their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them a wife, his wife in battle. Neither did you give them or else would, you would now be guilty. So he's saying, when fathers come looking for their kidnapped daughters, don't say to them, uh, you know, we did the wrong thing. They're, they're going to say, just be thankful we didn't murder you to take your daughter and you didn't break your promise. That's where things are at. And we end with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is where things are up to. In the nation that was supposed to be a shining beacon of love and of godliness, of holiness, of righteousness, of what it looked like to live together in, 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 in holy community, worshipping the true God, this is where things have devolved to. This is where things have devolved to. But once again, when we turn our eyes to our own nation, we see many of the same features of where, where innocents are hurt every day. And I'm going to return to the theme of abortion. And I know it's a cliche, right? The, the preacher man who's railing against abortion. But there's a, there's a point there's a reason why we're coming back to this. Because innocents are killed in our country every day. And it's hidden. Unlike the, uh, the kidnapping and massacre of people that, uh, that the Benjaminites did. Unlike, the, uh, unlike the, 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 the rape in the public square in Gibeah. Those things were public and there was outrage. But every day in Australia and countries around the world, innocents are being killed. This morning, there are ladies taking poisonous pills to kill their newly conceived children. Tomorrow morning, there will be doctors who go to work and are paid by our government to kill infants. It is an atrocity. It's an, atrocity. It's an abomination, and it is rife in our land. And I could go on and talk about other atrocities and other things, but I think we get the picture that our country is not healthy. Our country is not healthy. But like the other things that we've talked about, these are a symptom of a greater problem. These are a symptom of a greater problem. The problem is that we are not with God. And of course, I'm talking collectively because most of us here this morning will serve God and, and do claim the name of Christ and are Christians, but I'm saying collectively as a community, as a nation, we stand against God. We stand opposed to God. And we were a nation that used to say that we belong to him. It's in our constitution. The, the preamble to our constitution starts with under almighty God. That's who we thought we were as a nation, like Israel thought they were people who served God. Now, Let's, let's make sure we have the distinction here. I'm not saying that we are like Israel in that we receive the covenant from God and we're the chosen people. I'm not trying to say Australia is the chosen people of God. But I'm saying that we're still people who have walked away from God. And the only answer is to go back to him. The only answer is to go back to him in and through our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We can invent programs. We can change the laws. We can do all kinds of things to try and make things better. But what is really the problem is our hearts are far from God. And we need our hearts to be made right with God. And the only way that that can happen is through Jesus Christ.
Jesus came to unite people back to God, to reconcile people to God, to take the people who were rebels, to take the people who turned against God and turn them back to the Father. And he did that by living the righteous and perfect life that you and I can't live because we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He did that by living that perfect life and then he went and he laid down his life in our place. We deserve to die. We deserve to die because of what we've done. We deserve to die because of our passivity in the face of such evil in our land. But because of the great mercy of God, because of his great love, he made a way that we might be forgiven through Jesus Christ, through the laying down of Jesus' life in our place. He paid our sin debt. He paid our guilt debt with his life and died where we should have died. But he says this, all those who... All those who put their faith and trust in him, all those who turn back to God will receive the forgiveness and mercy of God, who will see, receive the righteousness of God. And when we turn to God, he said he will give us his spirit to live in us and enable us to live in the way that we couldn't live before him. He gives his spirit to enable us to turn against these atrocities, to turn away from it and to live in a way that is pleasing to him and pleasing in his sight. That is the only way. We need a king who will lead us. Unlike Israel in the time of Judges, we need a king who will lead us in righteousness. And that king, we're going to celebrate being born tomorrow. That king was Jesus, born in a stable, who was fully God and fully man. And when he died and rose again, he was crowned as king of kings and lord of lords. He was a king of David's line. He was a good guy who came from Bethlehem. And he was the king who would set things right and who will lead all things to their final and full conclusion. He's going to remake the earth and do away with completely all of the sin and evil that has gone before. So the invitation is to turn to that king. And right now, though his reign is not uh, fully apparent everywhere, it will be one day. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But my invitation for you is to do that today if you have not already. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't, this is tough stuff, but Lord, in your word, you have given us these stories and it's difficult for us to deal with and to think about. But Lord, we know that it's important for us to, to hear these things so that um, when we pray that things like this would never happen again, like that happened to that poor uh, concubine. Uh, we pray, Lord, that evil like that would be taken away. And we thank you, Lord, that, that Jesus came so that those things could be undone and, 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 and taken away. Please, Lord, forgive us in our nation as, as citizens of this country for the evil that we have helped, uh, um, helped share and spread in this nation. Please, Lord, help us to turn away from that. But we thank you, Lord, that though we stand guilty before you, although we stand as those who should be condemned for our failure... You provide a way through Jesus that we might be saved. Uh, we pray, Lord, that, uh, that, you, that you would make all things new, that you would undo injustice and evil once and for all. And we thank you, Lord, that for all those who belong to you, we will get to see that day. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.